This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Everyone knows that life gets spookier in October. There's a chill in the air, a new rustling in the treetops. Even the moon seems to glow brighter in the night sky. Ghosts, werewolves, and other frightening things emerge from the dark wood. Spirits haunt the streets and the airwaves. Yes, folks, you heard that true. There's a haunting presence here at WPRB tonight, just in time for Halloween. Five apparitions shall make themselves known. Five stories, true, mythical, fantastical, terrifying. Here on your community radio station to send a chill down your spine. It's spooky stories all around tonight. Here at WPRB News and Culture. First up, Navani Rachamalu, an Italian medic, bring to us a retelling of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, a classic gothic tale. Next is Jacobson and Mira Ho Chen hear some stories from young people who've had encounters with the paranormal themselves. Charlie Nurberger and Henry Moses speak to mythographer Angus Gillespie of Rutgers University, an expert on the classic Jersey Devil said to haunt the Pine Barrens. Audrey Zhang goes to the Princeton University archives to learn about the ghostly presences on the Princeton campus. And finally, Hannah Lee and Claire Kaneshiro embark on a classic fall tradition, a spooky wandering through a corn maze. Stick around, we'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community supported, independent radio. First up, Navani Rachamalu, an Italian medic, bring to us a retelling of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, a classic gothic tale. It's true. Yes, I have been ill, very ill. But why do you say that I have lost control of my mind? Why do you say that I'm mad? Can you not see that I have full control of my mind? Is it not clear that I am not mad? Indeed, the illness has only made my mind, my feelings, my senses stronger, more powerful. I could hear sounds I had never heard before. I heard sounds from heaven, and I heard sounds from hell. Listen. Listen, and I will tell you what happened. You will see, you will hear how healthy my mind is. It is impossible to say how the idea first entered my head. There was no reason for what I did. I did not hate the old man. I even loved him. He had never hurt me. I did not want his money. I think it was his eye. His eye was like the eye of a vulture, the eye of one of those terrible birds that watch and wait while an animal dies, and then fall upon the dead body and pull it to pieces to eat it. When the old man looked at me with his vulture eye, a cold feeling went up and down my back. Even my blood became cold. And so, I finally decided I had to kill the old man and close that eye forever. So you think that I am mad? A madman cannot plan. But you should have seen me. During all of that week, I was as friendly to the old man as I could be, and warm and loving. Every night about 12 o'clock, I slowly opened his door. And when the door was opened wide enough, I put my hand in and then my head. In my hand, I held a light covered over with the cloth so that no light showed, and I stood there quietly. Then, carefully, I lifted the cloth, just a little, so that a single, thin, small light fell across that eye. For seven nights I did this, seven long nights, every night at midnight. Always the eye was closed, so it was impossible for me to do the work. For it was not the old man I felt I had to kill. It was the eye, his evil eye. 
and every morning I went to his room, and with a warm, friendly voice, I asked him how he had slept. He could not guess that every night, just at twelve, I looked in at him as he slept. The eighth night, I was more than usually careful as I opened the door. The hands of a clock moved more quickly than did my hand. Never before had I felt so strongly my own power. I was now sure of success. The old man was lying there, not dreaming that I was at his door. Suddenly, he moved in his bed. You may think I became afraid, but no. The darkness in his room was thick and black. I knew he could not see the opening of the door. I continued to push the door, slowly, softly. I put in my head. I put in my hand with the covered light. Suddenly, the old man sat straight up in bed and cried, Who's there? I stood quite still. For a whole hour, I did not move, nor did I hear him again lay down in his bed. He just sat there, listening. Then I heard a sound, a low cry of fear, which escaped from the old man. Now I knew that he was sitting up in his bed, filled with fear. I knew that he knew that I was there. He did not see me there. He could not hear me there. He felt me there. Now he knew that death was standing there. Slowly, little by little, I lifted the cloth until a small, small light escaped from under it to fall upon. To fall upon that vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and my anger increased as it looked straight at me. I could not see the old man's face, only that eye, that hard blue eye, and the blood in my body became like ice. Have I not told you that my hearing had become unusually strong? Now I could hear a quick, low, soft sound, like the sound of a clock heard through a wall. It was the beating of the old man's heart. I tried to stand quietly, but the sound grew louder. The old man's fear must have been great indeed. And as the sound grew louder, my anger became greater and more painful. But it was more than just anger. In the quiet night, in the dark silence of the bedroom, my anger became fear. For the heart was beating so loudly that I was sure someone must hear. The time had come. I rushed into the room, crying, Die! Die! The old man gave a loud cry of fear as I fell upon him and held the bed covers tightly over his head. Still his heart was beating, but I smiled as I felt that success was near. For many minutes the heart continued to beat, but at last the beating stopped. The old man was dead. I took away the bed covers and held my ear over his heart. There was no sound. Yes, he was dead, dead as a stone. His eye would trouble me no more. So I am mad, you say. You should have seen how careful I was to put the body where no one could find it. First, I cut off the head, then the arms and the legs. I was careful not to let a single drop of blood fall on the floor. I pulled up three of the boards that formed the floor and put the pieces of the body there. Then I put the boards down again, carefully, so carefully, that no human eye could see that they had been moved. As I finished this work, I heard that someone was at the door. It was now four o'clock in the morning, but still dark. I had no fear, however, as I went down to open the door. Three men were at the door, three officers of the police. One of the neighbors had heard the old man's cry and had called the police. These three had come to ask questions and to search the house. I asked the policeman to come in. The cry, I said, was my own, in a dream. The old man, I said, was away. He had gone to visit a friend in the country. I took them through the whole house, telling them to search it all, to search well. I led them finally into the old man's bedroom. As if playing a game with them, I asked them to sit down and talk for a while. My easy, quiet manner made the policeman believe my story. So they sat talking with me in a friendly way. But although I answered them in the same way, I soon wished that they would go. My head hurt, and there was a strange sound in my ears. I talked more and faster. The sound became clearer, and still they sat and talked. Suddenly I knew that the sound was not in my ears. It was not just inside my head. At that moment, I must have become quite white. 
I talked still faster and louder, and the sound too became louder. It was a quick, low, soft sound, like the sound of a clock heard through a wall. A sound I knew well. Louder it became, and louder. Why did the men not go? Louder, louder. I stood up and walked quickly around the room. I pushed my chair across the floor to make more noise, to cover that terrible sound. I talked even louder, and still the men sat and talked and smiled. Was it possible that they could not hear? No, they heard. I was certain of it. They knew. Now it was they who were playing a game with me. I was suffering more than I could bear from their smiles and from that sound. Louder, louder, louder! Suddenly, I could bear it no longer. I pointed to the boards and cried, Yes! Yes, I killed him! Pull up the boards and you shall see! I killed him! But why does his heart not stop beating? Why does it not stop? From WPRB News and Culture, this has been Navani Rachamalu and Natalia Medik. WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's phillytenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next is Jacobson and Mira Ho Chen. Here's some stories from young people who've had encounters with the paranormal themselves. Paranormal activity is usually reserved for horror movies, Frankenstein-esque novels, and exorcisms, but what if it's actually more common than we think? It's spooky season here at WPRB, and today, reporters Mira Ho-Chen and Izzy Jacobson collected some of the most terrifying stories on Princeton's campus. Asking the simple question, what's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? We heard about everything from sleep paralysis, hallucinations, to haunted cabins, from echoed voices to demonic possessions. Stories that may just change your perception of ghosts, spirits, and the undead. Hi, I'm Eddie O'Keefe. What's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? Certainly the scariest thing that's ever happened to me is just the one thing that's ever happened to me that I certainly can't describe. So I was on a camping trip with my high school, like backpacking in the woods of New York, and we were basically all sleeping in these like different little lean-tos. And at one point, it was kind of like the evening, people were just, I don't know, doing like cooking and stuff like that. Me and two of my friends were in the corner of the lean-to, like in the back corner, kind of next to like the wall. And I don't know what we were talking about, but we just sort of started like laughing. And I I can't really explain it very well, but basically it was kind of like that feeling where you feel like kind of like laughter rising up in your chest, you know? And, you know, and it just doesn't stop. And it just sort of like the laughter just got so much more intense and more intense. And we were just dying laughing and things almost seemed to get like blurry. And trust me, this was like junior year of high school. There was no funny business involved. And we were just like laughing and laughing and laughing. And it got like almost frighteningly scary. And then I, this is my experience. I felt like sort of flashing lights in my eyes and then suddenly like darkness. And then I sort of feel like I kind of just came to, right? And I looked to my left and to my right to my two friends and we immediately were all like, what just happened? And I kind of talked to them and they're like, like, like literally like what happened? They had the same exact experience, just sort of like this really intense laughter followed by like kind of like flashing strobe light vision followed by just like kind of like darkness and silence. And there was somebody else in the lean to with us. And you know, they like had been like, what are you guys laughing about? And we were just like being like 
looking very insane in the corner. And then, then they said that we just sort of stared at the wall for like three minutes, blank stare. I don't have any recollection of it, but ultimately like, you know, like five minutes went by. I don't really know what happened. Never experienced or felt anything like that before. And as somebody who's like certainly a more sort of science oriented person, I, that's the one thing I've ever experienced in my entire life that I have no idea what happened. And so I think it was a ghost. Yeah. Cause somebody had been murdered in the lean to at some point in history too. My name is Greta. And what's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? I don't know if I consider it the scariest thing, but um, in a vacation home that my family used to go to, uh, there was some ceiling lights that would flicker often. And so me and my cousins became obsessed that it was a ghost trying to talk to us. And so we conducted a seance and the lights began to um, flicker like immediately after we would ask a question, it would pause when we stopped talking. We asked questions like, are you a ghost? Where are you from? How old are you? And it seemed to like kind of line up. Um, and we also just had weird experiences in that room. like. We like tried this like hypnotist DVD and all of us fell asleep for like an hour. It was just a very spooky room to be in. So I believe it was a ghost, but it also could have just been electrical issues. My name is Mara Samad. And where are you from? I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, and what was the scariest thing that ever happened to you? The scariest thing that ever happened to me was I, I was sleeping one night and I woke up at around three in the morning and I thought that I saw a, um, a scary figure right next to my bed with red eyes, um, like hissing at me and um, like, excuse me, saying scary words, like uh, saying, like just mumbling weird phrases of something that I did not understand. I, I screamed, um, I got mad and I yelled at it. It went away, um, but after doing more research, it turns out it was a sleep paralysis demon and it was not real. I felt absolute terror. I couldn't move, but once I, like, it made me mad, so then when I got a little a little anger, I got a little pep in my step, and then I could wake up, and then I woke up and I realized it was not real. My name's Maxfield Evers. Okay, and what's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? So, my grandma is very, very Catholic. And she is strongly um, a believer of, you know, the supernatural, necessarily. Um, and so I was staying at her house for Christmas um, with a couple of my cousins. And my cousins um, ended up going for a walk outside, as people do, as cousins do at family celebrations. Um, it was at night. It was cold. We were in the, the Rhode Island woods. Um, and we saw a light, a red light, from the middle of the woods. And we were really concerned what it was. Um, we walk up towards it, doing kind of the stupid horror movie protagonist things of just checking it out, even though it seems really suspicious. Um, and so we look at it, and it's just this abandoned shed that has a bicycle out front with a light on it, like a like a tail light. You know, you can buy like tail lights for a bicycle. So we just assumed somebody was living there or whatever, and we'd left it alone. On our way back, we hear a voice from the cabin saying, "You, why are you guys leaving, right? So we walk back, we go to the cabin, and there's nobody there. And the bike was still there, but there was nobody inside. So. Yeah, we, we went back, talked about it, and then, of course, my grandma said it was the devil trying to, I don't know, get to us on Christmas. But, yeah, it was definitely pretty scary. What's your name? Alejandra. Okay, and what's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? Well, around four years ago, around December, I don't remember what year it was, but I used to get a lot of like sleep paralysis and there was this one night. First of all, when you get this type of paralysis, you feel like you stop breathing, like you can't move, you can't talk. So it's generally very, very scary, terrifying. But that one night, not only did I feel that, but I felt like, this will sound weird, but I felt like I left my 
body, like I was looking at my body from above, but it, like it was fine. Like <laughs> my aunt told me that something similar happened to her, and then she told me how she like stopped feeling that. But during that night, I did not know that. So like I just felt like I was like looking at my at myself like from above, and then I like started hearing like a woman saying like my name, like hello. But then. <laughs> It's okay. But then, um, the next time, so I mean, that was the night. Then it ended, it eventually went away. The woman just said, hello, hello. I freaked out, but then it went away. And then I just, I went to sleep with my mom. <laughs> what's your name? Caitlin. And what's your story? When I was, I think it was winter break of my sophomore year of high school, I was staying at my grandparents' house, and I experienced sleep paralysis for the first and only time, and it's been a big, huge fear of mine for years, because I had a friend who had it, and it sounded terrible, and then I finally had it, and I think it was because I also had a fever at the time, so it was probably mostly that, but I was in a room by myself, and I like woke up. And I felt like I needed to, like, I thought I was playing hide and seek and I needed to, like, hide behind a chair. And I kept looking at the chair, but I couldn't get myself to, like, get up and go to the chair. And it was very frustrating and I was sweating a lot. For WPRB, this has been Izzy Jacobson. And this is Mira Ho-Chen. public art program exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton community-supported independent radio. Charlie Nurberger and Henry Moses speak to mythographer Angus Gillespie of Rutgers University, an expert on the classic Jersey Devil said to haunt the Pine Barrens. Uh, listen carefully as you walk through the Pine Barrens of South Jersey. It almost seems like the wind is trying to tell us something. <sighs> Old Mother Leeds. Old Mother Leeds. That was Dr. Angus K. Gillespie, a professor of American studies at Rutgers University. A folklorist, he studies the myths and tales of the United States. Working in New Jersey, he is the preeminent scholar on the Jersey Devil as well as the World Trade Center prior to 9-11-2001. We reached out to him in early October, and he kindly agreed to talk with us over the phone. Over the course of our conversation, he introduced the phenomenon of the Jersey Devil, its history, and its current situation. Folks in these parts said that it was a strange family. It was an unusual family. Um, well, we now know that it certainly was a large family. Uh, uh, Daniel and Jane Leeds had uh, 12 children. And there was kind of a problem. Um, now, Daniel Leeds, um, he was a good hunter, and he was a very good gardener, and not a bad fisherman. And there was always food on the table. That wasn't the problem. Uh, the problem seemed that uh, Daniel Leeds uh, wasn't taking too much interest in the children. And the entire burden of the household fell on Jane Leeds. And uh, she was mighty tired of uh, picking things up and putting things away. And uh, the cooking and the cleaning, uh, it was just exhausting. And, and then one night when she learned that she was pregnant with her 13th child, in a moment of perhaps understandable weakness she said lord let this one not be a child let this one be a devil well 
We now know that that was a mistake. Locals describe the devil as an amalgamation of different animals. The winged creature has hooved feet, a serpentine tail, and features of a monkey, kangaroo, or horse. In our communications before the interview, we had referred to the creature as the New Jersey Devil, which Gillespie readily reprimanded. What happened uh, as time went by, uh, for better or for worse, when the uh, professional hockey team came to New Jersey uh, years later, uh, they conducted a, a kind of a poll to decide what to call um, their team and what the mascot should be. And uh, they came up with the uh, mascot of or the term, uh, the New Jersey Devils. And what happened ever since then was the name recognition skyrocketed. Even even the people in the northernmost part of New Jersey now had heard of it because they heard of the hockey team. Um, for me as a folklorist, um, there were quite a few problems with this. Um, uh, I hardly know where to begin. Um, for one thing, they called themselves the New Jersey Devils. Well, as I already pointed out to you guys, uh, that's wrong. It, right. it's, 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 it's the Jersey Devil, plus it's the Jersey Devil singular. There's no such thing as multiple Jersey Devils. So uh, the whole story kind of got twisted around. Uh, the Jersey Devil's history is entwined with the history of New Jersey and its surrounding areas. During our research for this story, we were brought down many rabbit holes that emphasized the impact of the devil. My favorite involves Joseph Bonaparte, the older brother of the famous Napoleon. Joseph lived as an exile in America after he was forced to abdicate the throne of Spain. He lived on an 800-acre estate in Bordentown on the border of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, just 20 miles from Princeton. A hunting man, Joseph enjoyed expeditions in the, into the Pine Barrens. On one such trip, he encountered what he thought to be the tracks of a donkey with two feet. Abruptly, the trail of the track stopped. The creature had flown away. The hissing that he then heard understandably frightened him, despite the gun in his hand. Following the sound, he found himself face to face with the devil. Joseph made it out of this encounter alive, but not without fright. Perhaps not enough ink has been spilled over the Jersey Devil. There exists only one definitive study of the devil alone. However, Princeton's own John McPhee dedicated a small section in his book on the Pine Barrens to the creature. In his eloquent prose, he writes, At the age of four, it killed its mother and its father and began its terrible wanderings, cutting the throats of hogs, horses, cattle, sheep, children, women, and men, and leaving cloven tracks. People used to hang up lanterns to scare the Jersey Devil away. Most people in the Pine Barrens now look upon the Jersey Devil as pure legend, but there are many who do not. Unexplained and sinister events will still cause its name to be spoken in serious voices. In his own fieldwork, Dr. Gillespie tried to adhere himself to the locals of South Jersey. So what I had to do was uh, spend uh, many weeks uh, kind of establishing rapport, uh, talking about neutral topics um, like, like the weather, uh, the hunting, the fishing. Eventually, I might come around to talking about the old songs and stories that South Jersey was so well known for. But only eventually, if I sensed that they trusted me, could I bring up the topic of the Jersey Devil. After all this research, we still had the question, does the Jersey Devil exist? Uh, well, I'm often asked that question, and, uh, and that's a good question. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, it's the nature of a legend that it's a belief tale. So do you believe it? And I think all of us, and this goes back to philosophy 101, uh, the way our brains are wired, when we hear a story, we kind of approach it from a binary point of view. Uh, we believe it, we don't believe it. Um, mm. That's kind of the way our brains are wired. Um, um, 
you can either be believing or you can be skeptical. Um, but for myself as a folklorist, what I struggle to do is to keep an open mind, um, neither reject it nor accept it, but just keep gathering the facts. It's very difficult because that's not the way our brains are wired. But uh, in discussing this with my students at Rutgers, I always point out um, um, do we have proof that the Jersey Devil exists? No, we do not have proof. But let me turn it upside down. How do we prove that the Jersey Devil does not exist? You're right, yeah. It's a lot more it's, difficult to do. Yeah, that's, that's philosophy 101. Um, the influence of the legend continues to be felt online. Self-identifying cryptozoologists seek out irrefutable evidence of the creature and post their findings on YouTube. Others aren't so sure. One commenter said, quote, I do not attempt to capture images of him because I respect our bond more than clout for seeing him. He's not bad. He's misunderstood. This Halloween season, we know we'll be listening carefully to the wind song through the trees. And when you hear the sudden crack of a twig behind you, beware. Beware of the Jersey Devil. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge to over 250 community organizations including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next, Audrey Zhang goes to the Princeton University archives to learn about the ghostly presences on the Princeton campus. In the 270 plus years that Princeton University has existed, students and local residents have heard many ghost stories. Just looking at Princeton, with its Gothic architecture and castles old and new, how can one not imagine the possibilities? If you've ever visited Princeton's campus, have you ever considered where human remains may lie, and if students have seen anything particularly strange over the years? I'm Audrey Zhang, a member of the class of 2025 and a prospective art major. Through art, I deal with emotions, and fear is quite a visceral one. For this episode, I visited Princeton's Mud Manuscript Library, which specializes in public policy in the 20th century and Princeton's history. There, I met April C. Armstrong, a special collections assistant. April first told me about the East College Ghost, a story that appeared in the Nassau Literary Magazine at Princeton. The exact date? March 1st, 1869. The story begins with a student who introduces himself as a pretty jolly Princeton boy who grew up to be a lawyer. When he was still a college student, he and his friends would drink punch or alcoholic beverages and party through the night, oftentimes roaming through the darkness. On one particular night, our jolly Princeton protagonist had his share of punch, and when he tumbled into his narrow bed, he wasn't quite sober. When dawn broke, here is what he said upon waking. It was a long, dark face, and the nose was huge and flattened, and the nostrils wide and gaping. A sort of fiendish grin was on its countenance. A devilish grimace flashed across the visage of the thing. Two objects that seemed like short horns projected from its head. But those eyes, 
large, lustrous, and terrible in their deep expression of remorse, of horror, of pain. They might have been the orbs of some tortured being, fallen from exalted heights and visited with the fearful punishments which afflict the wicked spirit. What spirit, you might be wondering, had he seen that morning? In his shock, our poor Princetonian tried to get back to sleep, but to no avail. When he awoke, he tripped and fell face first into the floor. As weeks went by, the boy commented that, I confess to being in a wretched state of mind. I thought it was really the evil one, and no mistake. In his fear, he worked hard on his studies, stopped smoking tobacco, and must have hoped that the demon he saw would not come back again. Out of his class of 64 people, he advanced in standing from 56th to 54th, due to his efforts. A few weeks later, our Princetonian was walking along a road when he saw the spirit again. However, in broad daylight, it was clearly, get this, a cow. Back then, Princeton had a lot of farmland, and farm animals could wander on campus and peer into the windows of Princeton students. Now, let's move on to the walls of our Princeton building, shall we? According to April's article titled, Can Nathaniel Fitz Randolph's Descendants Attend Princeton University for Free? From the Mud Manuscript Library Log, back in the 1800s, a Quaker named Nathaniel Fitz Randolph raised a lot of money and gave a lot of land to support Princeton and his name is forever remembered on our Fitzrandolph gates, where all students walk through once when entering school and once when graduating. Upon his death, Fitzrandolph was buried near Holder Hall, but in 1909, Woodrow Wilson, then the university's president, decided to move him. Where would be a good place, you might wonder? Beneath Holder Hall's eastern arch. Now, students who walk by Holder Hall may or may not know that they are passing by the remains of Nathaniel Fitzrandolph. As I talked to April, she brought up more and more incidents where people would unearth bodies during construction projects and move them. April mentioned that people of the Victorian era approach death differently than we do. It seems as though they did have to face many more diseases back in the day, so death may have been a more common occurrence. According to History of Princeton and its Institutions, many Quakers had unmarked graves back then. April told me that once, when people were trying to build a road near Princeton, they kept unearthing many bodies, bones of people from the past, maybe Quakers, which is one way to start a construction project. April also told me that there are several cemeteries near Princeton, some of which are called Shank Coven Hoven Graveyard, Stony Brook Meeting House Cemetery, Princeton Cemetery, and Memorial Grave of Princeton Battlefield State Park. Not all cemeteries in the old days were similar to the park-like ones we see often today. Most of the ones near Princeton are surrounded by greenery. There's one located in the middle of some fields, and you wouldn't be able to find it unless you knew where you were going and ventured into the wilderness. After hearing about all the ghost stories, I got to physically touch all the documents about these tales from the special collections. It was a strange and exciting experience feeling the pages that it withstood the test of time. I wonder if we, too, will be ghosts one day, legends to be told to people. Will people search for our resting places? Will we mean something to them? After I left the library on the rainy Monday morning, I didn't feel fear from hearing the stories. Rather, I felt a sense of peace and a quiet question within. Will we be remembered? How will we be remembered? It would be nice to be remembered for love and kindness, I think. As for where our bodies go, into buildings and roads would be an option. Back to the dust and dirt would be a nice way to begin the cycle of life again as well. For WPRB, this has been Audrey Zhang. Hello listeners, I'm Adam Sanders and I'm the host and executive producer here at WPRB News & Culture. I'm interrupting tonight's show to talk a little bit about WPRB's fall membership drive. I know it's a Halloween special, but things will get spooky, just trust me. In this era of mass media conglomerate control, community media stands as a beacon point for creative, innovative content. WPRB provides that. Arts, music, educational, and news media by and for the Delaware Valley community we call home independent of corporate or institutional control. 
We're funded entirely by our sustaining members' donations, and we need your help to continue producing the content you know and love. News & Culture is a labor of love, but its continued production relies on support of listeners like you. Making a pledge donation to WPRB supports News & Culture's mission of, pro of producing quality community arts, culture, and public affairs coverage for our New Jersey and Pennsylvania neighbors. Stories that engage with community activism, local artists, regional history, and current local affairs. As part of WPRB, we rely on the generosity of sustaining donors, listeners like you who contribute to keep WPRB alive. You can become a member by donating at pledge.wprb.com. There are some truly sick perks, including a really cool bottle opener and an absolutely terrifying t-shirt. But this Halloween, nothing is scarier the possibility of corporate hegemony over the media. Fight the algorithms, become a member, and support WPRB at pledge.wprb.com. That's pledge.wprb.com. All right, I'll stop chirping now. Back to the stories. And finally, Hannah Lee and Claire Kaneshiro embark on a classic fall tradition, a spooky wandering through a corn maze. Snyder Farms in Somerset, New Jersey, exclusively for the corn maze. They have an entire Fall Fest production, but we are only interested in the corn maze, and that is because I have never been at a corn maze before, whereas Claire has. Definitely not my first corn maze. Definitely not my first. A seasoned expert. Anyway, this one is particularly intriguing because apparently it is um, Godfather themed. Godfather themed. Crazy. We are about to enter. There is an entryway. This is quite spooky. We have a jack o' lantern, some caution signs, and a lot of spider webbing. We're not even five feet from the entrance of the maze, and apparently this corn maze is in the 21st century. And by that I mean that there's QR codes where you can scan it and see a map. No, it doesn't just give you a map, it tells you where you are in the maze. This but feels like it, cheating. It only gives you like a little corner so you can see only what's around you. Right, do I you see, see the Godfather theme else. though? It's loading, oh shoot, Ooh. I'm on the website. I see the T-H-E-R of Godfather. Oh, I see. It literally only gives you like a small corner of where you currently are. Well, I will be doing this every 10 feet as we find them. History of Corn Time. Corn mazes go back to 1993 when Don Franz and Adrian Fisher designed and built the first one in East Central Pennsylvania. Oh my god, another dead end. Wait, what? No. Uh, are we just really bad at this? No. Could it be? I totally thought that was it. I did too. I should have known when someone walked out of it. If someone's walking out of the direction, you won't go in that direction. What are you doing? Do you think I could just grab a piece and, like... Let's just pop a kernel out. Ooh, I got one. This is definitely not the kind of corn you can just eat without cooking. You know, most corn that we eat, you harvest earlier in the season. Because as corn really? stays on the stalk longer, it becomes more starchy. Oh, wow. So they harvest it early before all that sugar turns to starch. These are things I really did not know. Here's this kernel. It is... Sticky. It is also yellow. It's giving candy corn. In your expert opinion, is this low quality corn? 
I don't think this is eating corn. Also, why would you make a maze out of corn that could be sold for eating? I feel like the most common kind of corn in the United States is this dent corn or field corn that they grow for animal feed. I think for other products like corn tortilla chips. That's the most common kind of corn. You kind of let it dry on the stalk and then it gets super starchy. Mm -hmm. That's probably what's going on here. Oh, more corn facts from Claire. Straight out of Indiana. Is it a shortcut or is it a trick? It's a trick. Yeah, I don't trust it. If the corn is shorter than me, then something suspicious is going on. Do we think it's a dead end? It curves, I can't tell. I say we go down it for journalism. Journalistic purposes. Not at all because we are lost. Yeah, so we saw a corn cob and it had no kernels on it. It was just on the ground. Theories on what happened. Corn cannibalism. I would not have come up with that one. I was going to say the scarecrows clearly are doing their job because I think a crow went at it. I believe it. I feel like we're making progress. I think we're definitely moving to places we weren't before. If that's what counts as progress in a corn maze. It's a crossroads. It's a whole intersection. I feel like I should say here, I'm bad at like regular road directions too. Hannah. So, <laughs> so, um, I say forward. Okay. We take a peek. We take a peek. This seems wrong. I'm getting, I'm getting wrong from this. Are we getting dead end vibes? Well, not a dead end, but why are we walking in the opposite direction? Why are we going in a loop? Are we walking in a circle? We're not walking in a circle. Were we here earlier? Hold up. I'm suing if there's a circle in the corn maze. We can test this very easily. You know what we can do? Is you stand here and I go around and see if I find you again. You got this, Hannah. I believe in you. Okay. You stay here. I will walk around. Okay, we're testing our theory that there's a circle in this corn maze. I feel like there have to be maze rules, right? Like, you can't have circles. Because then you can be eternally stuck in the maze. Anyway, let's hide from Hannah. I'm dipping behind some corn. There is. A circle. Yes, we just reunited. I'm gonna say a terrible pun. I just want you to brace yourself. That circle really threw me for a loop. But um. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I was a little cocky going into this. Like, I was like, how can you get lost in corn? The current situation is that we are lost in corn. There are five directions. Are there really? One. One. Two. two and then we have, three. like, three, Oh, gosh. Four. I guess four. I'm less worried about dead ends now. I'm more worried about walking in Walking spin. in circles? Is this giving you another circle vibe? I'm getting a little concerned. I kind of feel like we were just here. I feel like we were here 10 minutes ago, weren't we? No, we definitely were. Isn't this where you said we have five paths? Yes. I think this is a path. I feel like this is a cheat. You see where people literally trample corn? <laughs> They're like, corn like, is so short here though. How can you not? Clearly, there is some desperation here. The corn has been trampled. Let's take the shortcut. Okay, let's go.
help. We were no. just here. We were just, we were just here. We were just here. Our, I think when we hit the first circle, I think that was a bad sign. You know what? I think this happened because I made that pun. You made the loop pun and we got stuck in a loop. This is my fault. I think what I have learned is if you're a corn maze beginner, you should not take the corn maze lightly and you should not make fun of the corn maze or it will get you back. Wait, I'm seeing an exit. Is it the exit? Made it out of the corn maze. How long did it take us? It took us 34, 35 minutes? 35 minutes? We beat the time. average. The average is an hour, isn't it? Yes. Above average. Do you punish yourself like me? Though you know it's not what you need. I wonder if you This is Hannah Lee. And this is Claire Kaneshiro for WPRB News and Culture. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's producer, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Navani Rachamalu, Natalia May Deek, Izzy Jacobson, Mira Ho Chen, Charlie Nuremberger, Henry Moses, Audrey Zhang, Claire Kaneshiro, Hannah Lee, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our editors are Hannah Lee, Claire McQueenie, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, and Henry Moses. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. Can't get enough of news and culture? Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WPRB News. That's at WPRB News. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton. Community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.